the real bit of cartography is to be able to look at that situation and say, we should move these slightly apart so that you can see the road runs beside the river, even if they're not 100% geographically accurate. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today I'm talking to a guy called Andy Allen. Now Andy is the founder of a company called Thunder Forest. He's been working on the OpenStreetMap project for the last 10 years. He's a cartographer and he's got some really interesting views. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview with me today. I really enjoyed our, our pre-interview chat that we had a, a few weeks ago, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. But before we dive into the actual interview, can you just take a few few minutes to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, hi, I'm Andy Allen. I'm the owner and founder of a small business called Thunderforest, which makes um, customized maps and activity-specific maps. And I'm also a long-time OpenStreetMap veteran. I've been involved in the project for more than a decade, and I'm one of the developers for the core piece of software that runs the website and the API. Now, I, I think, Andy, you're a really interesting mix because you're a programmer and a cartographer. So, so I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation because I think that you'll have like, quite different perspectives on things. But maybe you could say a little bit about your involvement in OpenStreetMap and how it relates to Thunder Forest. Sure. So I first got involved in OpenStreetMap back in uh, 2007, uh, 2008 era, just as a volunteer. So we were out mapping the streets of London with a GPS in one hand and going back and adding data to OpenStreetMap. Some of the data that we were adding was for cycling, um, like where bike routes were, where bike parking was. And this didn't show up so well on the main map. And that's when I first started getting involved in the cartography, making a, a custom map, now known as Open Cycle Map, which shows lots of things useful for cyclists. Now that kind of grew as a hobby and spiraled out of control a little bit, so it became uh, a, a full-time job. Um, and as more app developers, more websites wanted to use these maps, and as I came up with more different map styles, like for public transport and for outdoor activities and hiking and things like that, um, it's become a a full-time business. And so all this data that you use for your maps in Thunder Forest, this comes from OpenStreetMap, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So OpenStreetMap is more than just the map that you see on the the front page. So there's all kinds of really interesting um, details that the OpenStreetMap volunteers add into the database. And you can't show all the details on just one map. So there's all kinds of different people. My company is just one of them who can take that open source data and show it in a new and interesting way, just showing showing things that are of interest to particular groups of people. So you're making what I guess you could describe as activity-specific maps. Yeah, that's right. Um, a lot of the maps you see, especially online maps, they're, they're all fairly generic. They're all mostly aimed at car drivers with maybe just a, a few footpaths thrown in. But I like to make the maps like really focused on, on what you would need if you're out hiking or what you would need if you're um, out cycling. So OpenStreetMap, I guess the, the, the listeners of this pro, um, podcast will be familiar with the OpenStreetMap project. I mean, it's, it's an icon in, in terms of the geospatial world anyway, in terms of the mapping world. 
you know, we, we know that it gets thousands of edits a day. How do, you, how do you cope with that? How do you ingest those edits in your products and how do you update them? So we take a feed from OpenStreetMap. The, the foundation publishes every 60 seconds a little snapshot of all the data that's been added to OpenStreetMap um, in the last 60 seconds. And so we take all these little diff updates, bundle them up, and apply them to our systems. Uh, that then kicks off a process of refreshing our maps, um, and our customers get to see the updates a, a few hours later. Um, for for those of us that are into GIS and maybe run a web map of our own for for an organisation or an interest group or whatever, we we're quite used to the idea of caching. So um, do you have a cache in the background where you have uh, pre-rendered images of your maps that you deliver out to the client? Or how does that work? And what would that mean in terms of updating a, a global map? Yeah, so we, we have two layers of caching. The, the second layer of caching is the most simple one. We cache the map images that we send out to our customers. Um, and they, they generally stay in the cache for, for a few hours. Um, but before that, we don't take things directly from our, our databases. We, we create vector tiles, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, we create vector tiles from the database. And that's a sort of pre-processed snapshot of, of the, the map data. Now, this, that's what we keep on disk. And from these vector tiles, we can essentially color them in to make all of our different maps. And the coloring in process is lightning quick. It's only a, a few milliseconds to, to take this vector data, create the map image from it, and then send it out to the customer. Okay, so because you have this uh, this sort of light workload, I, I guess you could, you could call it. So that, that means that updates from OpenStreetMap, they're, they're not a huge effort for you as such. It's not like it takes weeks to sort of come through into your system before they're visible in, in Thunder Forest maps. Yeah, exactly, um, and it's all it's all really high performance processing, um, but we we can take these these updates, update our vector tiles. Only the ones that have changed need to be updated. So, like it, in in a given few hours, sure, there's thousands of changes in OpenStreetMap, but the world's a big place, so we don't need to refresh everything from scratch every time. In the pre-interview, I just want to stay with with OpenStreetMap here for a minute and this idea of editing data and how that works. Because in the pre-interview, we we talked a little bit about the, the amount of uh, edits that are, that are performed on OpenStreetMap data every day. And you mentioned that um, these edits are performed by both machines and humans. Uh, I think we all have a bit of an understanding of what uh, humans look like when they're editing a map and they can sit in front of the computer and draw and update and that sort of thing. But what kind of tasks are these bots doing and, and why are they doing it? Yeah, so there's a few different companies involved um, in adding data to, to OpenStreetMap. And the, the data comes from a variety of places. One of the obvious ones is in certain jurisdictions, uh, there's the data is available in the public domain. So a lot of people in the US will be familiar with the idea that the local governments provide their, their map data. So some of this can be useful for OpenStreetMap. Uh, some of it is kind of hard for, for volunteers to go out and, and map individually or, or just tedious, like drawing the outline of tens of thousands of buildings. So people run scripts and bots that take this data, process it, figure out what's in OpenStreetMap already, what's not in OpenStreetMap, and then 
while consulting with all the local mappers, the, the volunteers who are, who are working in a particular region, they figure out what data they want to take from external sources. But there's also companies doing cool, interesting things involving aerial imagery analysis for, for other places where perhaps there's not so many OpenStreetMap volunteers, but you can um, figure some stuff out from the aerial imagery. So they use machine learning, get some data, and then often, well, it comes down to a choice. You can either import that into OpenStreetMap or also just make it available for OpenStreetMap volunteers to work with in their editors so they can pick through certain features or maybe adjust them before they get saved in, into the database. But in both cases, it's, it's key that the volunteers are involved as well because OpenStreetMap's not just like a dumping ground for, for gigabytes of data. I think that's a really interesting idea. I definitely hadn't hadn't thought of that before. The idea that the machines could could do the the bulk of the work first, and then present it to the volunteers and say, "Okay, we've filtered this data. We have a rough idea that this is a house, or this is a tree, or this is a park, or whatever. Can you please look at it and confirm it and add it add it to the map?" Yeah, it works especially well for areas that are partly mapped already. Um, to to just to provide the the extra data to, to a mapper who can figure out the conflation and figure out which bits overlap or duplicate or are just slightly misaligned instead of having two petrol stations that are only five meters away from each other um, it can help a, a human to go oh no there are two petrol stations one on each side of the road or no actually they should both be on the same side of the road it's just some kind of registration error that's that's duplicated it and I think that really sort of shows a lot of respect to the to the rest of the community. You know, instead of just um, having machines do the whole thing, I think you know because this is a community project. This has been built by people, volunteers, spending thousands of hours of their time to up to make this sort of global good for us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's it's always worth remembering how many volunteers there are involved in OpenStreetMap. So we're looking at more than 35,000 different people edited OpenStreetMap in the last month. So there's a huge number of people involved. Um, and so there's many willing hands available if you if you want to update a particular area or a particular set of data. I don't know the answer to this at all, but is it possible to, to highlight an area on OpenStreetMap and say, hey, we're missing data here. Could you focus here if you're looking for something to do? There's a few different projects available that can uh, help like focus the, the community either on a specific topic or a specific area so people can um, set up these tasks or these challenges um, and say hey either we've got some data for this area can you can we work on it or we've looked at all the bridges that cross railway lines and some sometimes there's roads crossing railway lines and it's neither marked as bridges or, or underpasses can we can we focus on that so there's definitely ways of of like attracting attention to particular topics and, and or places in OpenStreetMap. I'm really pleased that, that you, uh, you took the time to tell us a little bit more about OpenStreetMap because it is a really exciting project, but it's also quite difficult to find our person to talk to about it because it's, it's a community-run effort. So I really appreciate that. But I'd sort of like to move on now and talk more about um, cartography in general. Now, your work with Thunder Forest, there's very few people that actually get the opportunity to make almost like a one-size-fits-all map of the world and multiple different zoom levels. Now, I realize, of course, that you're making these sort of activity-specific maps, but in the grand scheme of things, it's like a cycle map for the whole world. You're not making multiple cycle maps 
for different places in the world. You're making one that fits the whole world at these different zoom levels. What kind of challenges do you face when you're making a map like that? Well, one of the challenges is uh, trying to convince people that I haven't cycled around the entire world making the map for myself. So <laughs> I, I often I often get emails from people saying, hey, this route in Arkansas should go down this street and it goes down that street. So there's a bit of explaining as to what OpenStreetMap is. But I, I like the idea that people think I make these maps, you know, totally from scratch. But the other challenge is, is just in the cartography. Um, the world is a widely varied place and it's hard to make a map that looks good in all these different situations and all these different zoom levels. So whether you're riding through backcountry US somewhere or in the dense urban environments like Hong Kong or Singapore, it all shows up on the map and it all needs to be dealt with. So there's a lot of careful choices go on as to how to how wide to make streets or what features to show on each zoom level in order that um, urban places look busy but not unintelligible or, or illegible um, whilst making sure that enough features show up in, in rural areas that you don't just get a completely blank map when when you look at it so that's that's really that, that kind of global variation in just the density of, of life um, that's one of the key challenges in making these uh, maps because the process is, is fully automated. I, I'm not going in and, and tweaking certain areas. I need to pick rules and then apply them to the, the whole world at the same time. Have you had any sort of pushback around your choice of colors? Because people, you know, they, they have some, um, I guess, really strong opinions about what things should look like. And it's one thing to represent a house as a polygon, you know, it, it, but there's a whole other thing your choice of color when you represent a house. Have you run into any sort of cultural differences around those kind of understandings? Yeah, there's a lot of people who are very familiar with the maps from their um, like national geospatial agencies. So in some parts, people expect houses just to be black squares. And if it's not a black square, they don't recognize it as a house. And so... I think this was a bigger problem a few years ago when there were fewer different maps on the scene. Basically, people had seen Google Maps and their local mapping agency when I started out. Um, but I think now people are, are more comfortable with the idea that maps are going to look different. There's so many different suppliers. People see so many different maps on their phones compared to like 10, 10 years ago. Yeah, I can, I can definitely understand that there's more people doing it now than what there was doing it. But in the grand scheme of things, I still really feel like there's only a couple of really big players and they've sort of stamped their mark on the cryptography world. If you think about Google, for example, and you know, they came out with the, um, they used the Mercator projection. Now they've moved over to the globe. But at the start, it was the Mercator projection. And I think that that kind of set the scene for like, this is what the default map of the world looks like. So I could imagine if you come along and you challenge that and say, well, actually, it could look like this or it could look like that. I, I could imagine you could run into any problems or some problems, I should say. Yeah, there's definitely things around familiarity for people, um, especially with these online maps. A lot of them all kind of converge on the same white background. Well, blue sea seems a bit more uh, reasonable, um, but the same same limited color palette. And it's I guess it's a bit like websites. It kind of goes in trends. If you think of um, the variety of websites that there used to be, but 
um, any background colors and font colors and things, but everything just coalesces to whatever the aesthetic of the day is. And then online maps, I think the aesthetic is quite minimal at the moment. Now that's not to say that like a riot of colors is the best approach. I've certainly been guilty of that in the past when I've first introduced um, elevation-based coloring to, to OpenCycleMap. It was really strong. The colors were really vibrant. Um, and that's, again, one of these difficulties of doing your own cartography is whatever you're working on right now. So in, the, in that case, that year, it was doing this elevation coloring. That's all you're focused on. You get really wrapped up into you. You make something that looks really great. And it's only a couple of weeks later you look back at it and you think, yeah, there are other things on the map as well. It doesn't just need to be full on elevation coloring. So, that, so I've definitely toned that down o over the years. But there's a whole lot of experimentation that can be done. Um, maybe for the big players, it's too much of a risk. They just want to play it safe with the same kind of white, bland color schemes. Um, but I think there's a there's a huge option. And when you look at more traditional cartography, um, people uh, produce a much wider variety of color palettes and color schemes and, and ways of visualizing things. Yeah, I, I agree. But I think one of the really things interesting about your work is you're one cartographer serving thousands and thousands of, of people. And I think that that's the kind of... Um, the opposite to that idea of traditional photography, uh, cartography, sorry, where you're one cartographer, but you might only be making, you know, two, three, four, a couple of hundred maps maybe, and they're, they're obviously they're, they're static. So in a world where one cartographer can serve thousands of people, but we already have a standard, we already have uh, a default in terms of mapping, in terms of those really big players, the Google, the Bing, the, the Apple Maps, is there still opportunity for cartographers out there today? Or when you look out in the future, what do you think the biggest opportunity is? I think there's definitely roles for, for cartographers. I, th I do think the bigger opportunities are around these global map systems. So the traditional cartography might have been about uh, all the way back to, to taking copper sheets and punching holes in them or, or marking the ridges so that you can run off a few copies with contact printing. And I think those tools have changed and I think the opportunities for cartographers to be making like just single use maps, maybe like a map for a signboard, these are becoming harder and harder to, to make a living from. So I think there's definitely opportunities in these global maps. At the moment, all these global maps and, and to a certain extent, the maps I make as well, they're really quite simplistic. They're mainly driven by programmers, and computer science and user interface designers without that much reference to cartography. And some of that is a lack of knowledge and some of it is that the tools are just not capable of, of producing really high quality cartographic output. So if there's cartographers out there who are interested, there's a huge amount of opportunity in getting involved in this side of the industry and really creating global digital maps in, in a way that haven't been seen before. Just when you're talking there and you're talking about opportunity and I couldn't help but think towards um, to, to think about w websites, for example, and how they've changed and they've gone from being these static things, you know, almost pre-rendered that, you know, one size fits all. We arrive at the website, we see the thing. 
But now when people talk about websites, they're starting to think that they're starting to think more in terms of segmentation, like who is this person? So we know a little bit about them when they arrive them arrive at the website and we want to lead them on a journey. We want to show them something they're interested in or answer the question for them. Could you imagine maps going in this direction? So instead of having the, the one sort of uh, global default Google map, for example, could you, arri- could you imagine arriving at a Google map, for example, and it's saying, oh, well, I know a little bit about you. You're so-and-so. You live there. You do this in the same way they do with uh, normal search and showing you the things that are more relevant to you? Oh, yeah, definitely. And so one example would be if you're putting on a map for your business. It's a really common use case for, for maps on, on websites is saying, here we are. And a lot of the businesses only kind of just put a marker in the middle of the map, focus the map on where they are, and, and that's the end of it. But when you think of what people do with sketch maps, they have maps showing the main routes, the main ways that people would get to that location, which way they would approach to get to the car park and, and so on. So even if it's not a motorway, if the motorway is just bypassing town, it's not involved in your business, why is that the biggest feature on the map? So you could definitely start seeing maps adjusting more to when they know what's going on. So a digital map could adjust to show, highlight the roads that are most likely to be used to get to this location rather than just an off the shelf. This is what the map of the local area looks like. When I hear you talk about it, it, like, it makes me excited about cartography. It makes me see that there is actually a future there. And I think too, and the idea of that that one cartographer serving thousands and thousands of people and getting the opportunity to make specific maps for specific groups and people instead of that one size fits all. I think that would, I think it would be really exciting. I think though um, the tools that are needed there are, are what's going to be interesting because to be able to do that on scale requires certain software. And again, to take more different types of cartography input into these digital maps, um, requires much better tools than, than we have. So one example I like to think of is a, a road and a river running through the countryside really close to each other and there's nothing else anywhere near. Now on most maps, whether it's Google Maps or, or whoever, you'll either draw the road half on top of the river or, or the other way around. But the real bit of cartography is to be able to look at that situation and say, we should move these slightly apart so that you can see the road runs beside the river, even if they're not 100% geographically accurate. And so building the tools and bringing in these ideas of how to do better cartography, but to do that cartography at scale, that's where the, the most interesting challenges lie. Okay, so you definitely see opportunity in the space for new cartographers, and you, would, and you see the opportunity being in these, these global maps. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the tools that are needed, should they have like a GIS background, a geography background? Could they be a designer? Could they be a, a programmer? Is is there any one mix of of these skills that, that you think would be would be optimal for someone looking to get into the space? That's not really one I can comment on too much because my background is in IT support and my qualifications are all for chemistry. So I'm not a programmer. I'm not a cartographer. I'm not a GIS analyst. Um, so. <laughs> I think this shows that it's more about what you learn 
if you're willing to learn stuff and also if you're willing to push the boundaries and, and do something new if you have a good idea and you're you're willing to run with it now there's definitely stuff around knowing a bit of programming a bit of gis but you can pick up a lot of these things whenever you figure out what the problem is and, and run with it but i think a key thing with any of this is if it's involving business you got to be focused on your customers and it's what your customers need um, and if you don't have any customers yet then think about what it is you need. If you are unhappy with maps, if you're unhappy with the map you're using, that's a great place to start. That was where I got involved in the first place. It wasn't that the map was bad, it just didn't fit my needs. And so that drove me to learn the tools, learn some cartography and, and take it from there. We've, we've come a long way now. We started off talking about Thunder Forest and how that relates to, to your work or your previous work at OpenStreetMap. And we've moved sort of through into cartography in, in, a, in, in a very general way, but answering some big questions along the way, I think. So just before we say goodbye, I've got a couple more questions for you. And one of them, I think, I feel like we've maybe, we've touched on this a little bit, but what is cartography going to look like in the future? I... I, I hope lots more cartography. <laughs> That's what it is. I, I hope it doesn't just become a lowest common denominator, something run by um, computer science majors who are, who are focused on efficiency and, and rendering times and, and things like that. Because I, I remember looking at um, things like National Geographic maps when I was a, when I was a kid or, or ordnance survey maps in the UK. Um, and all the details and all that kind of like really careful thought that was put into making these maps, um, making them not because it was the quickest way to make them or involved the least ink or the fewest colors or, or anything like that, but to really get the best representation of the world. So, so I think that's where I, I hope it, it heads. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's, that's my, my future. That's, that's what I hope uh, at least. Is there is there one company out there that's doing this really well today? Apart from Th Thunder Forest, of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. but um, is there any sort of industry leaders you look to and go, wow, these guys, they're doing something amazing. They're they're, they're doing something interesting. They're thought leaders. There's a few of them who are definitely pushing the boundaries. There's there's different boundaries that get pushed though. So um, Stamen, uh, a big name uh, from San Francisco, they're always doing really interesting things with with cartography. And MapZen, who unfortunately kind of had a rocky period over the, the last couple of years, um, they were really pushing some of the technology. Uh, unfortunately for me, some of their maps ended up being more technology demos than, than maps themselves. But it was great to have people focused on pushing the boundaries of what the, the technology can do beyond just drawing some lines and, and filling in some polygons. Andy, I really want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. I've really enjoyed this sort of look into the world of cartography and, and where it's going and the industry itself. So thanks again for that. Really great. Just before we say goodbye, where can we go to follow along with your work and, and maybe learn more about you? Well, you can see all the stuff I do for work is at thunderforest.com. And then if you want more insights into to what I'm up to, have a look at uh, Gravity Storm on Twitter. We will do. Thanks again, Andy. You're very welcome. Great to talk to you. 
And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and today I'd like to ask you for a small favor. If you're enjoying this podcast and have a friend that might enjoy it, I would really appreciate it if you would share it with them. I'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, you are more than welcome to reach out to me on social media if you have any questions or comments. I would love to hear from you. Cheers. Bye.